Okay, we are once again jumping into Revelation chapter 3. Now we began the last of the seven letters last week. Uh, a letter that was written to the church in Laodicea. Uh, we made some comments, and one of the things that was outstanding about it was it wasn't in, in, in all the other letters, Jesus commended the church for certain things. And some of them, he had rebukes because of things they were doing they shouldn't have been doing or things that they weren't doing that they should have been doing. But the thing about this particular letter is there is no commendation to the whole letter for the church in Laodicea. That tells us that the church there was in a place that the others were not necessarily at. Uh, and we talked about how it was a very wealthy and affluent society, which probably trickled down into the church. And, and, and we understand this, that wealth, Jesus says this, is very difficult for a rich man to make it into heaven. But we know that in Christ that can take place. But evidently, this is a situation where the the the, the, the con- the community around seemed to be having more influence upon the church than the church was having upon the community. They have a sense of self-sufficiency. Uh, and we know, understand that's one of the dangers of being a wealthy person or having wealth is that you begin to believe that you don't really need much of anything else because you have everything that you need that money can buy. There's a danger in being a wealthy person But at the same time, we know that God can overcome such things as this. We also know that Jesus says this in very strong language, that that he's going to come, and when he comes, what he's going to do is he's going to vomit them out of his mouth. Very strong words used by the Lord. You may have walked around out of here last week feeling kind of down in the dumps because you didn't see any bright, shining light in this letter. But let me just tell you, there is one, and it's coming today. We just didn't get to it last week. Okay, so let's, we're going to read this whole letter, and then we'll pick up on the, uh, with verse 18 and continue on. And, in, and, the angel, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, uh, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of, Uh, of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and eye salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Be zealous therefore and repent. Behold I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him. And will dine with him, and be and he will be with and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down uh, with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 18, Jesus says, I advise you. Notice here, this is not an imperative. It's not a command by Jesus. He's not commanding them to do this, that, or the other. What he's doing is he's giving them counsel. He's painted a picture of what their circumstances have to be. He's painted a picture in a sense of the predicament they happen to be in. And this is what his advice and counsel is to them. To buy from him his gold refined by fire. Now, we understand that gold has always been considered for, for most of the history of mankind as a precious thing that people put value in. We know that having gold sometimes is a measure of one's wealth. And we can imagine that gold was probably a plentiful thing in Laodicea and probably in the pockets of many of the people in the church This is not just any gold, however. This is the gold that comes from Jesus. And we understand that he's not talking about literal gold here. That he's talking about something that is even far more precious than gold. And we understand that what underlies this whole message in all of these letters uh, to these different churches is the, is the precious treasure, the precious Gem, the precious pearl of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing more valuable on the face of the planet than the gospel itself is. Because it is the way of salvation. It's the way, it's the one and only way for people who are fallen away from God to be restored in relationship to him, and you notice here that's how this all ends. That there's a relationship, a close knit relationship there made between Christ and those who overcome. You think about those kingdom parables. One of those has to do with treasure, and one of them has to do with a pearl of great value. And we know that they're all pictures of the gospel. And how we should be willing to give up anything and everything in this world that the world has to offer uh, to obtain this precious, precious treasure that comes uh, in Christ Jesus. It's refined gold. Now we understand that gold nuggets don't, uh, pure gold nuggets don't occur occur really out there in the world. That the the gold where it's found is found typically in, in gold and ore and that that ore has to be refined. And, and one of the ways that the ancients used to refine gold, they do it very differently now. They do it through chemical processes and things like that. But one of the principal ways that was dis- determined, first of all, is that you smelt it or you burn it, you heat it up. And when you do that, what you're doing is you are causing the melt, uh, the gold to melt, and it will flow away from all the impurities. Some of those impurities will be actually be burned up in the fire. So we understand what, we're, what he's getting at here is gold that is refined. 
And that's the gospel. The purest gold there is, the the greatest treasure that any people could ever be offered uh, and received. So that they would be not physically wealthy in the world, but they would be rich above measure in a spiritual sense. We understand this. These are are pictures of of physical things that are representative of deeper spiritual things. And white garments that you may clothe yourself. Well, you probably don't know this, but Laodicea was noted for its production of a number of things, and one of those was black wool. That was one of their premier commercial efforts in Laodicea. And so what I would imagine is this, is to see someone in white garb was a rare thing. And it was probably kind of set aside, especially for priests and maybe other special people. The common folk probably didn't wear white very often. Mostly what they wore was black. So someone that had white on would be someone who would stand out as being different. Now we understand this, that white and light as we were talking about in, uh, in, in John's uh, first epistle this morning. That they're representative of the holiness, the purity of God. That Jesus would clothe them. And sometimes you've heard people talk about the cloak of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard anyone speak about that? There's a sense in which uh, Jesus' righteousness is, is laid upon us. That it covers us. And sometimes that is called the cloak of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I personally don't like that picture. Because I think it misleads people. Uh, the reason I think that that picture misleads people is this, is because I want you to understand something, that Jesus' righteousness doesn't just cover over yours, your, uh, over, uh, cover over your unrighteousness. In other words, it's not a sense in which, from God's perspective, that, that unrighteousness is still part of the picture. It's just covered over for now. Or it may be just covered over for all of eternity. That is not what Jesus accomplished on the cross. What Jesus accomplished on the cross was this, is he did away with your sin completely, totally, absolutely. It's gone, period. It's not just covered over, it is gone. I salve to anoint your eyes. I don't know about you, but I cannot stand to get anything in my eye. It drives me crazy. Yesterday I was mowing, and I don't even know how it happened, but suddenly I got uh, you know, a grain of sand or something in my eye, and I couldn't get it out for anything. I used eye drops. I did this. I did that. And let me tell you, I was absolutely miserable all day. 
And I went to bed last night hoping and praying that when I got up this morning that I would not be dealing with it when I was standing before you this morning. And hallelujah, it was gone. But what Jesus is talking about is that these people, they're diseased. That their eyes are faulty. Their eyes are failing them. They're looking upon the wrong things in life and they're finding their value in those things. I said before that there's a reason for hope. If you read to see the first part of this letter, you would walk away from it thinking that is, they're just in a hopeless situation, that they're so bad, that there's nothing they can do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. God, Jesus is going to come spit them out of their, his mouth, vomit them out of his mouth, and that's the end of the story. But thankfully, it's not the end of the story. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. In other words, there's reason for us to believe here that the word, Jesus is not writing a letter to a church of people who are not believers. He's writing to a church of believers who have fallen away from him to some degree. But at the same time, they are his. Now, have you ever fallen under the discipline of the Lord? I mean, how, do we, how often do we think about the possibility when bad things come our way that it might have something to do with the Lord disciplining us because it's exactly what, he need, what we need? We talk about God as the perfect Father. He knows what we need far better than we do. And we understand that He's an omnipotent God and that... Everything that he's decreed comes to pass, and so we need to understand that the difficult things that come in our life are also by the hand of God. They may not feel comfortable to us. We may not like them. We may try to squirm out from underneath them and this, that, and the other in life, but we need to understand that he's an omnipotent God and that he does everything that comes our way comes by his hand. He gives us only what we need. And there's always a reason in it. Probably a lot of reasons, but one of the primary reasons is to drive us back to him. To remind us of who he is. We understand that raising children is a very difficult thing. And my my heart goes out to younger people today for a lot of reasons. And one of those is this, is most of us can remember a time when, when raising children was really more of a community project. Where it was not teachers against parents, but it was parents and teachers working to get, together for the common good of the children. We can remember things like this. Have you ever, at one time or another, smacked your child on the rump in public? I'm talking to you older people. I'm sure that we probably did on occasion. 
Now, we hear stories all the time today about parents getting into trouble with DCF and so on and so on. Someone sees something like that happen in public, they call a DCF, and the next thing you know, DCF is at their house investigating them. Talk to any school teacher, and they will tell you that things are very different today than they used to be because it used to be teachers and parents working together for the common good of the students, for the children. Today, teachers more often than not feel like they are working against parents. And parents very often display teachers as working against them. I know of teachers, and they will tell you horror stories about, about some student getting into trouble at school and going home and telling mommy and daddy, and the next thing they know, they're on the telephone to them, chewing them out because their child got into trouble. Most of you would say this, that when I was growing up and when I raised my own kids, if my kids got into trouble or I got into trouble when they were at school, they got it doubly hard when they got home. Discipline is a nasty word in the mouths of most people in the world today. But we understand something. Discipline is something that is absolutely necessary for children to grow rightly. That without it, there is no hope. They're sinners. Discipline is designed to help us to choose the right rather than the wrong. And the kids desperately need that. But we need that as believers. We need it as believers. I mean, has your faith been perfected? Have you reached that point of perfection like we were talking about in Sunday school? When was the last time you thanked God for disciplining you? Have you ever thought about thanking him for giving you discipline when you finally understood that you needed it? Just remember, he is a perfect father. He always does what is necessary for his children. Always. He never makes a mistake. He's never made a mistake one time. Notice here again, there is a call to repent. That's a common thread in most of these letters. People are called to repent. And we've talked about this so much, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail this morning, but we understand that repentance really is a mindset. That it's an ongoing thing. It's not something we just do on rare occasions. You know, like maybe once in a blue moon, there's some sin that we've committed that really kind of knocks us in the face and whatever and repent of it. Repentance, my friends, should be part of our daily prayer. But notice here that Jesus is calling these people to repent. Then we have probably one of the most noted verses in all of the book of Revelation. 
I would imagine most of you, if you've ever heard of Revelation chapter 3 much, you've probably heard of Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and, and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. I know that verse by heart. And some of you know it by heart. Because it is part of the EE Evangelism Explosion Gospel Presentation. Right? If you've ever heard it before, more than likely it's been connected to that. Now, I want you to notice something here because Jesus has already used the illustration of a door and what he's, he's written in these letters. You and I very often want to jump to the conclusion that any time we see the door all through the book of Revelation now, it's going to mean exactly the same thing. It's symbol, symbolic of exactly the same thing. And I want to challenge you with an idea this morning that that may be true sometimes, but it's not always true. And I think this is an exception to it. Because when we studied a few of the verses earlier on, we talked about the door of salvation, how, how Jesus has opened that door now. It's open, and he's beckoning people to come and to enter through that door. But we also understand that one of these days he's going to close that door. The parable of the ten virgins says that very, very clearly. Jesus talking about what is going to happen at his second coming, that the door is going to be closed eternally, not to be open again for anyone else. No latecomers. You've got to be on time. You've got to get bef- through the door before the door closes. And we understand that can be at any time. And, but, but that doesn't really fit into what Jesus says here. The picture here is different. The picture here is there's a door separating Jesus from people. And he's standing on, at the door and he's knocking on the door. Hoping that somebody's going to open it. You may not realize what the real distinctives of Reformed theology are. We are a Reformed church and we're proud to be a Reformed church because we believe that that makes us a more biblical church. There's a lot of talk that goes on around uh, very active evangelism programs about people making decisions. I want you to understand something. We all believe that there comes a point where someone makes a decision. And that decision is to follow Christ or not follow Christ. Okay? It doesn't matter what background you're coming from, if you're reformed or anything. We all believe that, that you have to make a decision, that you are part of it. The place where the difference comes is this, is the reformed understanding, and what I believe is a biblical understanding of of what takes place before that decision is made. If you do not believe that we are saved by grace and grace alone, then you have to believe this, that you've played some part in, in saving yourself by expressing faith when other people don't. You have to believe 
that everyone, without any help from God, without any transformation by the hand of God or the Spirit of God or any part of God, that we are left in a condition, every single one of us, where apart from any influence from God whatsoever, we have the ability to choose God at any time that we want to. And so very often people see this. They see this passage as teaching this, that Jesus standing there at the door and knocking on it and almost pleading with people to open the door just so he can go come in. That is not a very good picture of God at all. It puts people in control. If we know anything, people, we know that God is the one that's in control, not us. See, we know this. We know that we make a decision. I made a conscious decision to follow Jesus. Edge made a conscious decision at some point to follow Jesus. But where the disagreement comes is how did we get to that point? What we call generation, what we call being born again. Jesus makes this very clear that unless you're born again, you're not entering the kingdom of heaven. Period. And how are you born? You're born by the Spirit of God. Not by the flesh. In any way, shape, or form. From John's prologue. Some of you heard the name Jack Miller. He passed away a number of years ago. But had a very strong and lasting influence in certain parts of the PCA. Uh... I had, I had read some of Jack's stuff before I met him. I had the pleasure of meeting Jack Miller. Lori and I actually had Jack Miller in our house at least one time and had dinner with us and, uh, and all of that. And he was the one that had started the mission, principal person responsible for the mission in Uganda that Lori and I went on. His wife still is on the mission field. She's in England now. She's no longer in Africa, but she's in England. She's been there for a long time. And, Jack passed away from a heart condition uh, many, many years ago now. But he explained this in a way that I've never heard anyone else say it. He said this, yes, you open the door. But before you do that, you know what God does? He sends the Holy Spirit in through the back door. And he sets the house on fire. Then you open the door. Understand that God is the one who's in control of this whole thing. And and one of the things that bothers me more than anything else about a lot of the evangelistic presentations, they give everybody the idea that we're in control of the situation. It's all up to me. But guys, it just is not biblical. Biblical. You understand, like, it's verses like this that demonstrate to us so clearly that we have to take everything that we learn, everything that we hear, and we have to wait in the balance of Scripture. In other words, our understanding of, of this whole picture cannot come from this one single verse in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. We have to let all of Scripture Paint the picture for us. And when you do that, you don't have people 
standing inside of a door and Jesus knocking, almost begging to come in. That just is not the picture that Scripture teaches us. I mean, you're here this morning. If you're a believer this morning, you're a believer because God determined that you would be, and he's done absolutely everything necessary to make that a reality. He brought you to the point that you were willing to open that door to make that decision. If he had not done that, the door would still be closed. I believe so strongly in these doctrines because it's exactly what I saw happen in my own life. Most of you have heard my testimony probably more than you'd like to, but let me tell you, I was not looking for God at all. Was not interested in God at all. Wanted to hear nothing about God at all. Didn't want to be around those Christian people at all. And he began to move and work in me. I know it. I don't doubt it for one minute. He took an atheist and turned him around 180 degrees. He does it all the time. But he, if he had left me where I was, I would still be there. And so would you. Does that mean that we don't spread the gospel universally? And I'm not saying that at all. We should be sharing the gospel with anybody and everybody that we ever have an opportunity to share it with. Because you never know. You never know how God is going to use it. One of my best friends when I became a believer was one of the people who witnessed to me. He told me, Keith, he said, you are the last person on the face of the planet I ever thought would become a Christian. So stop this deal where we go out and I do the same thing. And you look at so-and-so and you say, look at that guy. He almost looks like a Christian. He would make such a great Christian. Let me share the gospel with him. See, it's up to God. God's the one who determines. And very often, he calls and he brings and he does all of this for people that no one else would ever think of. There's some some people sitting in this room this morning that when you became a believer, folks around you were shocked because they did not see you as a candidate for being a Christian at all. You were worldly, you were godless. Maybe never pictured yourself that way. That perhaps other people had. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. There are passages in Scripture that teaches that we're going to rule with Christ. If he rules in his kingdom, we're all going to rule right along with him. Now, what exactly is that going to look like? I don't know. But it's one of the promises that he makes to us. 
Have you ever wanted to be a princess? Sarah is. I tell her all the time. I don't even see her. She's not in here. Oh, there she is. She's back there on the throne already. Have you ever thought what it would be like to be royalty? Have you ever longed to be royalty? I haven't really thought too much about it. I've never wanted to be a prince or a king or anybody. But what scripture teaches us is this. Is that we not only become children of God. We become princes and princesses. Of real royalty. Of the royalty. Of the house of God. Must be a big throne. See, Jesus shows himself to be that which has made that possible. And that is because he's already done everything necessary. And Jesus entered back into the heavenly places. What did he do? He sat down at the right of God his Father. And that is where he is now. In that heavenly throne room. And he is your advocate. He speaks on your behalf in the heavenly places. Have you ever thought about this? That your name echoes through the halls of heaven? That's how precious you are to your father who loves you. And your your savior who saved you. Some of you gone through life feeling like there was nothing special about you. Some of you have never, maybe in your whole lifetime, ever been told by anyone that you were special. Some of you go through life feeling like you're not desirable at all. You wonder why anybody would really give you the time of day. Why anyone would show any special interest in you. Some of you have been downtrodden your whole lifetime by people around you. Sometimes people that you loved and respected. But the gospel tells us a lot of things. And one of those is this. Is though even though you may not be special among people. You are very special to your God and Father in heaven. Who loves you infinitely. More than infinity. Always remember that. And it will change your perspective on life. It will change your perspective in all the things that you do.
It will transform you. And that's what this is all about. Transformation. It's ultimately what all these letters come down to. Is God's transforming power at work in people like us. I don't know what you've gleaned from these letters. I've I've been through them, I don't know how many times now, and every time there's just new things that come. So, you know, we're wrapping up our study of those seven letters. Don't forget about them. You know, don't leave them in the dust as we move on into Revelation. Because they're, they're key, I think, to understanding and keeping things in perspective as we do that. Uh, the praise team is going to come this morning and lead us in the Apostles' Creed first, I think, right? And then I-